Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And thank you to everybody who has been listening to us. We've been seeing a recent spike in podcast activity and YouTube activity, and thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. And, of course, make sure to tell your friends and tell your enemies. Yes, especially tell your enemies. And our socials are, we are on the TikTok at TBSmith68. Instagram is CCC NOLA Podcast. YouTube channel is Crescent City Crime, where we've recently found a home for our friend David Ford, correspondent in the field. Yes, yes, we've... uh... We found him in employment since his uh, separation from BBC World Service. Yeah, so make sure if if everybody, hey, do do us a favor, will you? You know, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you have a dog, just leave our, our episodes playing on autoplay while you're gone. Yeah, the dog will. Uh, dog will, would love it. Yeah, the dog will really, really love it because dogs love us. Dogs love us, and we love dogs, and in fact, there's a dog sitting on the bed next to you. Yes. Yes, yeah. she is, yeah. She's excited for Halloween. That's right. That's our, our, that's our Luna dog. Yeah. She's looking at me like, why are you saying my name? <laughs> You're a good girl. And she's wagging her tail. Yeah. I, I'm narrating this for the audience at home as if... <laughs> But yes, it, but but really, I mean, I am I, I'm making a joke, but I'm also not making a joke. If y'all if y'all want to do that, that'd be fun. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, we also appreciate any ratings or reviews on whatever whatever platform that you listen to us on. And of course, make sure to subscribe to us, follow us on all the things, because that's always helpful too. Always want to get more word of mouth. Yes, we do appreciate all the help you can give us. Now, Brian. Brian. Yes. Are you ready to step into the Wayback Machine? Ready. <laughs> oh, no. All right. So, we're going back to January 1911. And this is in... Rural, rural Louisiana in 1911. Brian, what movie had we recently seen that also took place in a rural area in the early 1900s? Pearl. Pearl, that's right. And this story kind of has some Pearl vibes to it, except the family accused of these murders that we're about to describe in this episode is a black family. So it's a black family in rural Louisiana in the early 1900s. Not an easy life for anybody, but especially for black people at that time. Because there were a lot of people alive who still remember what great event that happened, Brian. Yes, yes. The Civil War. At that time, yes, there, there are many people still alive from, from the Civil War. They were, uh, and at this point, I think this is at the point to where there was there was reconciliation of, between members of the North and the South, and there were annual get-togethers. The last of which took place during World War II. Uh huh. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is there is footage that you can find from the World War II era where they were wearing their old uniforms walking down the street and, uh, you know, on a parade. And most of them had beards. And, of course, they were all, you know, it's black and white footage, but yeah, you can tell they're, they're all gray. They're, they're very old. Right, yes. And, of course, those are the teenagers and the who civil, were in the Civil War at and that point. The Civil War ended what year? Eight, 1865. Okay, 1865. So this yeah. is, what, not even 50 years after that, right? No, about 50 years after that. 1911 from 1865. Yeah. Yeah, okay, about yeah. 50 years after that. Okay. Yeah, so even the youngest are, are elderly. Yes, even the youngest are elderly at this time. So a lot of those prejudices are still very much alive, just like they are today. You know, but at that time it was it, it was different tensions, and black people did not have. I mean, they had next to, to no rights at all at this time. I mean, black people couldn't even vote yet. Yeah, and and women women couldn't vote yet either. That's true. So now this is the background, right? We always have to get into the background because I always want people to have a context of what time these stories take place in and again there's no internet there's no telephones there's no tv you know i mean well, you're you're like kicking cans in the dirt for fun if you're a kid at this time yeah, yeah. playing outside playing playing games yeah maybe playing cards maybe playing cards yeah 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 so Early one afternoon in late January 1911, a police officer in West Crowley, Louisiana, received an urgent phone call. Neighbors feared something terrible had taken place at 605 Western Avenue. When Officer Ballou arrived at the house, he found the home's three occupants, a man, woman, and small boy, lying in bed with their skulls split open. The bed was drenched in blood, and bloody footprints were all over the floor. The doors were locked, indicating that the killer had come in through a window and murdered the family while they slept. There was a bucket of blood in one corner, and at the head of the bed, just above the bastion bodies, stood a bloodied axe. Axe murder. Yeah, that sounds like Pearl. It does, and also, yeah. I, I just need to point out, at this time also... Everybody in, in, in just about everywhere had an axe. This, an axe was an essential tool for the home. You had to split wood for the winter. You had to kill animals to eat. So everybody had an axe. Everybody had an axe to grind. <laughs> okay. Now, but so because of this, though, during this particular period in American history, axe murders were very common. Uh, for example, in Villisca, Iowa, and other parts of the Midwest, mass murders were committed by someone with an axe. And even though an investigator has theorized that all of the Midwest axe murders were connected, they still remain unsolved over 100 years later. And this is somebody who, you know, at that time, it was so much harder to trace anybody. You know, you, again, you did not have cell phones. You did not say... Like to your Instagram followers, hey guys, I'm going to Paris for the weekend. Bye. 
you just didn't have that. You could just pick up and go. Yeah, records were all all written records. Mm-hmm. There were, were there, were, there, there were no credit cards. It was all hard currency. That's very true. So it's hard to track people's movements. And these people, of course, they didn't uh, use checkbooks either. No, they did not. You could, but those were probably the days where you could go down to the corner store and get some credit, get a line of credit for meats or vegetables, right? Yeah. Or perhaps you traded with your neighbors. I mean, you know, if you have a, mm -hmm. you know, two farmers, one's a cattle farmer, one's a produce farmer, you could trade produce for cattle. Or, or barter, trade. Yeah, uh, trade. Yeah, trade work. Yeah, trade work, yeah. For, for food, yeah. Yes, you could do that too. Now, across the American South, the city of Atlanta was dealing with the Atlanta Ripper. He victimized at least 20 young African-American and mixed-race women. Between January 1911 and April 1912, either one serial killer or multiple serial killers were responsible for the 49 murders across Texas and Louisiana. 49 murders. Wow. So that's that's a lot. Axe murders, right? Axe murders, that's right. So I wonder if anyone thought about whether or not uh, it had something to do with the the easy access to axes. <laughs> well, I mean, there was, well, let's see, there was a, um, a, a cow in every yard, a chicken in every pot, and an axe in every hand. Yeah, everyone had an axe to grind. Yes, they did. Now, of course, and also these crimes were committed long before we understood serial killers. We didn't even have the, the term serial killer in our lexicon yet, okay? And there was all these advancements that we have today in crime scene technology. There was none of that back then either. You didn't have DNA. You didn't even know what DNA was. Imagine all that. Yeah, imagine. Wow. Imagine all that. Axes, axes everywhere, no DNA, no crime scene technology, no knowledge of serial killers. This is where we are right now in this story, okay? Yeah. So the murders took place in small towns along the Southern Pacific Rail, Rail, Railroad line. So you probably had somebody who was jumping on and off trains and going into these little towns and killing people. Imagine that. It's also considered back then that I don't think people understood that uh, to this type of person it was a hobby. What, uh, riding the rails or killing people? Killing people. Ah, uh, like yeah. Killing that, that to, you know, to the serial killer killings, a hobby. It's something that they, it's a sick pleasure they enjoy. So it, it's still a time where Whenever there's a murder, everyone's looking for a motive. That's true. The serial killer, well, doesn't really have a motive. They're just having fun. Yeah. Well, maybe fun is their motive. You know? Yeah. If you can't get your, your fun any other way, that's or your, your real fun, rather. I mean, you could have fun going to a water park. But, uh, I mean... But instead, some people find it more fun to hurt other people. And once again, like the, the character uh, Pearl from the horror slash movie Pearl, 
Yeah, she even says at one point that she that she rather enjoys killing. Yes. Yeah. Now, with while some sources think that the first murders in this particular string date back to 1905, it is generally thought that the first victims were named Edna Opelousa and her three children. They were killed in Rain, Louisiana, in November of 1909. And then the next killing took place in late January 1911 when Walter Byers, his wife, and their son were hacked to death in Crowley, Louisiana. Then on February the 25th of 1911, the murderer killed the Andrus family, who was a family of four in Lafayette, Texas. And it was at this point where police started to suspect that their crimes were connected because they were very similar. And they said that, and this is a direct quote, that this is the work of some terrible monster. Now, eventually police focused on a man named Raymond Barnabet. He was a local petty criminal and sharecropper from Lafayette who lived in the, basically, in the wrong side of town. His mistress was angry with him, and after a fight they had, she told her friend that she thought he was the killer, and he was arrested and brought to trial in October of 1911. So very fast, just based off of some gossip. There was not really a full investigation, at least, at least by terms of what we would call today an investigation, right? DNA, fingerprints. Is there an alibi? Okay. So all of that, whatever this evidence was, was probably not very great. I just want to point that out. Quite similar to the evidence presented uh, prior to a witch trial. Mm, yes. Now, Raymond's children, Zephyrin and Clementine Barnabet, testified against their father. And the teenage Clementine told a graphic story of her father returning home one night with blood on his clothes as he threatened to kill the family. What do you think of that? It's a teenager who was narrating the story said that her father came in with blood on his clothes and then threatened to kill the family. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a revelation. I mean, maybe, but also, I just want to point this out, too. You know, in our modern world, I feel like we're only just now, as a society, starting to understand what abuse will do to children. Back then, it didn't really matter. You know, you could literally treat your kids however you wanted. Okay? Yeah. And... If Clementine, if her, if her father was really a terrible person, and Clementine was probably terrified of him, and probably did believe that he would kill the family, don't you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's uh, far worse than you know telling the kids that uh, that there's monsters outside at night, so you better not uh, get out of bed and leave leave the house at night. Yeah. That's even worse. That's far worse than that. Now, the brother, Clementine's brother, Zephyrin, confirmed the story. She added that, the, or I'm sorry, he added that their father bragged that he killed the whole damn Andrus family. 
and both children said they feared for their life if their father was free. Now, while Raymond sat in jail, another murder took place a month later. On November the 26th, 1911, Norbert Randall, his wife and three children and their nephew were found dead in Lafayette's, but while the rest of the family was attacked with an axe, Norbert was shot in the head. Louisiana police, I'm sorry, Louisiana Parish Sheriff Louis Lacoste started to investigate Clementine and Zephyrin due to their reputation around town. During Raymond's trial, neighbors described the Barnabet children as filthy, shifty degenerates. So, so there's a lot going on in that Barnabet household. Yeah, like father-like children. Maybe, but we will get into the rest of it when we come back after this break. And we're back. So when Raymond was arrested, blood from the Andrus murders had been discovered on Clementine's clothes. Remember that Clementine had said that her father's clothes were bloodied. And then he bragged about killing the Andrus family. But now the blood has been discovered on Clementine's clothes. What do you make of this? He may have... uh used an article of his clothing to, to uh, wipe his hands off. Maybe. Maybe. Now, she testified during her father's trial that he had wiped the blood there, as a matter of fact. Brian, so you, your guess was right. But the sheriff was not so sure. When deputies arrested Clementine and searched the family's home, They found a complete suit of women's clothes in Clementine's room, saturated with blood and covered with human brains. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, an axe to the head. Yes. And Zephyrin provided an alibi for the night of the murders, but Clementine had none, so she was taken to jail. In January 1912, three more families were murdered. The Broussard family were the third victims and their hands were spread apart with pieces of wood. And the killer left a handwritten message on the wall that says, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble, which is uh, Psalms 912 in the King James Bible. And the message was signed, the human five. The number in the signature led police to think a band of murderers was at work and it also lent the group a nickname picked up by the press which was the human five gang. So so you got the press running running away with the story already. Okay and you know also something else I want to point out is that you know it's very hard for us to imagine today just how little entertainment there was back then reading a story like this in the newspaper was entertainment for them well yes yes the the newspapers were uh quite quite the source of entertainment quite the source of entertainment yes now you know i I, now we're going to touch upon the texas part of this 
So the El Paso Gazette seized upon the idea that the murders were connected to a voodoo ritual. And they published a story on the Broussard murders titled Voodoo's Horrors Break Out Again. So again, you have the press running with this story based on very little information, much like today. That, that sounds like satanic panic. It really from, does. From, from the 80s. It's probably the same, the same kind of thing. Very astute, yes. Now, so the story was sensationalized and connected the murders to human sacrifice that took place as a voodoo ritual. And they also leaned into the idea of the number five as having ritualistic relevance. And the El Paso Gazette was just the first to highlight the voodoo angle as other news outlets picked up on the story and also went with that idea. Yeah, but yeah, human sacrifices like during the during the eighties there was there was an urban myth that uh, satanic cults would randomly on an annual basis pick a member of the group to be sacrificed. Yeah. And, and there was this uh, there was this short film that was supposed to be depicting a a a satanic cult human sacrifice where they proceed to they don't show you everything but they supposedly they're about to have an orgy in the blood and uh, <laughs> it, it turned out to be fake of course it was the, fake the, the film was debunked of course the, the blood the blood turned out to be fake there was there was no sacrifice there was no murder ah but there was no debunking back then in 1911 that is quite true okay there was there was none of that back then and which which of course made it more difficult to debunk right because they they would just say this in a newspaper story exactly exactly people that was that might as well have been the gospel of the lord right okay so there was no debunking there was only the gospel of the newspaper stories that's yeah. it mm-hmm. your trusted source and back but back in the bayou rumors were swirling that clementine was the leader of a cult and it was called the church of sacrifice which is <laughs> <laughs> wow that's that's really corny okay <laughs> oh but back then it was probably like I, I can imagine this was kind of a name that people made up because they're like oh the church of sacrifice Ooh, sacrifice but the truth is is that even if you're a christian and you attend catholic or baptist church or whatever you know part of the ritual of church is sacrifice right like because you're supposed to be sacrificing things about yourself for jesus right yeah yeah that that was was my second thought okay you know catholics traditionally make sacrifices at the time of uh you know before lent yes and also you know catholics you know they they eat a representation of the body of Christ and drink a represent a representation of Christ's blood. Okay. Yeah. That's sacrifice. And if, you know, I mean, you could even say it's, it's some kind of weird cannibalism. If you wanted to don't come for me, Catholics. I was raised Catholic. Don't want to hear it. I'm entitled to my views. 
but well, it, it's 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 meant to be it's meant to be symbolic the the sacrifice that Jesus made right right but the uh, but communion is supposed to be a reenactment of the Last Supper yes yeah keep keep so keep that in mind yes Jesus did sacrifice himself right so yeah. so religion is all faith is all about sacrifice you know when you get yes. when you get down to it. So this is this is what makes it especially corny to call it Church of Sacrifice. True, very true. true yes. okay. Now this church was supposedly supposedly led by Reverend King Harris. He was a Pentecostal revival preacher with a small congregation connected to the Christ Sanctified Holy Church. The Holy Rollers. The Holy Rollers. That's right. Police interrogated Harris, but he insisted that he had never heard of a church of sacrifice. <laughs> and he was upset at the thought that his sermons could have possibly inspired a series of bloody axe murders, which is fair. I mean, I'd be upset, too. Yes, yeah. yes. That, that, that what your sermons being misinterpreted for the possibility of such. Exactly. That, that would be disturbing, yes. But then, on April the 5th of 1912, Clementine confessed that she committed 17 murders and that her followers committed others. She said that she had bought a voodoo charm meant to protect her while committing her crimes and that she and her accomplices drew straws to see who would commit the murders. Clementine also said that she disguised herself as a man to better lurk unnoticed at night. She also stated that she killed the children because she did not want them to be orphaned. And she also claimed that she caressed the corpses before she left them. Now, I'm not entirely sure if I believe that Clementine Barnabet killed 17 people. I think, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do, do the Scooby-Doo thing here where I'm going to pull the mask off and say, Oh, look, it was racism all along because, you know, during this time period, I mean, voodoo is still very much a mysterious faith to a lot of people. Okay. But it was created by slaves. Okay. They bought it from their culture to this country. Okay. When, when they were kidnapped and sold through the slave trade. All right. That's how it got here. Now, when you think about the racism involved, especially during this time period, you know, people had an even less understanding of voodoo then than we do now, right? Yeah. So it's very easy to point the finger at a faith that you don't understand and say, oh, it's the voodoo or, oh, it's, it's, it's the devil. It's the church of Satan, whatever, right? Yeah. Yes. So I also kind of feel like that maybe at this time, you know, Clementine, I mean, I'm imagining being a teenager at this time. Maybe this is exciting to her. You know, like all of a sudden she's got all this attention. You know, coming from this very small town where not a lot happens and your life because you're a black girl in, in rural Louisiana in the early 1900s. Your life sucks. 
So all of a sudden you're the center of this attention. Maybe she decided to grab onto it. Like those young girls, the, uh, you know, the, the, the witch trials, Salem. That's exactly what I was thinking because, yeah. you know, back then those girls were like rock stars in that town and anybody that they wanted to accuse of being a witch, they were believed. Yeah. So you, you had to stay on their good side. Yes. You had to stay on their good side. You had to be nice and, oh, wait, like, um, Oh, that was a good trial. A very, very good trial. Yeah, yeah. Like Bill, little Bill Mummy. Yeah. In that Twilight Zone episode. What was the name of that episode again? I don't, I don't remember. I'm sure there's somebody. I don't remember the name of the episode. I'm sure there's somebody sitting here listening to, the, to this episode and screaming the title. We don't hear you. We're sorry. But, but if you've not seen the classic Twilight Zone episode starring Bill Mummy, you really must look it up. It's quite easily accessible. The Twilight Zone is streaming everywhere. You should be able to find it. Yeah. Yes. Very much recommend that episode in particular. But yes. So so what do you so Brian, yeah, so you, do you are do you think that maybe she was just caught up in the celebrity of it all? <coughs> That appears to be the case, very much so. Well, in spite of her confession, her motives were never made clear, and her confession was met with varying degrees of belief. So not everybody believed her. Now, remember that she had previously testified in court that her father was the murderer, but the killing still kept happening. She gave names for her accomplices, but when Sheriff Lacoste investigated them, they went nowhere. Several arrests were made, but the search for the rest of the Human Five gang was a dead end. So this all went nowhere, ultimately. So there was, there was no Human Five? No, there was no Human Five. There was no Church of Sacrifice or none of that. Just the same as... Like with the investigations and the, the, the murders by the bunch of Jack the Ripper. When that uh, vandalism was on the wall that said the Freemasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was probably, that was the same, same type of uh, red herring. Right. That, that was used by, by the murderer. Because there was no, there was no real link to the Freemasons established. Right, exactly. Now the the district attorney Howard E. Bruner theorized that some of these murders were copycat crimes, but he believed that Clementine was a moral pervert and she was guilty of everything she confessed to. So I just want to pose it that, you know, if. If there was this one particular murder scene, you know, with the hands and the and the wood in between the fingers and whatnot that gave rise to this human five gang, kind of makes me wonder if this was somebody who had a particular vendetta against that family, knew that these killings were going on and decided to take that opportunity to do this themselves. And say, well, if I kill them with an axe, 
they're just going to think it's this, it's this other person doing it. Maybe that's why this murder was a little bit different. Had their own axe to grind. Had their own axe to grind. That's right. Yeah. So, but uh, do you think that's possible? I think it's very possible because it presents like unsolved, yes, unsolved murders can present an opportunity for some people to settle their scores. Right. If, if they copy the, the nature of the murder. Mm-hmm. Someone else can, can take the blame. We are going to stop again to take a quick break. And we're back. The court records for Barnabet's trial were summarized and published by the Federal Writers Project in 1942. The account makes it clear that there was a great deal of public confusion regarding the details of the case at the time. According to the Federal Writers Project, a state of confusion existed in the public mind regarding the sacrifice church, the existence of which had never been established. So that was untrue. There was no church of sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, a uh, reasonable person would kind of guess that these days. Yes. And they also established that there was a great deal of confusion over what voodoo actually was. Which, by the way, for those who may not be aware, if you ever see something in, you know, that's maybe it's Catholic imagery, but it has the name of a voodoo deity, it is because they couldn't even practice, slaves couldn't even practice their faith openly. So they would use Catholic imagery as substitution for their own deities to kind of hide it in plain sight. Okay. Yeah. So. Especially the case of the Exactly. So when you so when you consider that as well, that this is how deeply it had to be hidden, okay. And this is also why at the time, I mean, Buddha was still regarded with so much suspicion. You know, that you had these people who thought, oh, voodoo, oh no, sacrifice, oh no, Satan. <laughs> yeah, well, fearing what you don't understand. Fearing what you don't understand, which is why it is good to read and, and it is good to listen to certain podcasts like this one. Yeah. However, the damage had already been done and the Lafayette population was willing enough to place the blame on Voodoo and Clementine Barnabet. So even though investigators did not think that she was responsible, the public fully believed that she was. So as a court of public opinion, more or less got their way. And the district attorney believed that he had enough evidence to proceed with charges. So Clementine Barnabet was charged on April the 14th of 1912. While she sat in jail, she confessed to a total of 35 murders. Wow. Okay. But she kept retelling her story with differing details, which... Tech, which is usually the sign of a lie. Yeah, she she was taking credit for murders she didn't commit to enhance her reputation. Right. 
Now, her defense attorneys claimed that she was insane, but she stood trial and she was sentenced to life at the Louisiana State Penitentiary at the age of 19. She attempted an escape on July the 31st of 1913, but she was caught the same day. Despite her escape attempt, she was considered a model prisoner. And she did not serve very long. According to one brief report about the prison, Clementine received a procedure that was said to have restored her to normal condition, which allowed her to be released on good behavior after serving 10 years. And I just want to point out that this procedure was not a lobotomy since yeah, that, that hadn't been invented yet. Like this story is even before lobotomies. But what I think this procedure was, Brian, was an exorcism. That's what I think. Ah, uh, yeah, that that uh, wouldn't surprise me that people would actually believe in the power of exorcism to rehabilitate a criminal. Right. At that time. Yeah. Especially if the criminal would, would, would pretend that they've been possessed. Yes, and I know that while there is procedure in the Catholic Church for an exorcism, that's one of the things the Catholic Church really does not talk about, is who has been exorcised. So, but that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. I think that Clementine Barnabet was exorcised and then released from prison because of it. And naturally, she she rejoiced that the demon was driven from her. I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, Even though the story is murky, there was still evidence found in her room, which suggests that she did commit some of these murders. Okay, so maybe she was not entirely innocent. But it could also be that her father and her, and perhaps even her brother, were also murderers. And the one thing that ties all of these victims together, Brian, do you know what it is? What is it? All of the victims were mixed race. Ah. Okay. And I just also want to point out that even though, yes, you can say that the Barnabet family was angry at mixed race people, the clan could have also been just as easily angry about it too. Any racist could have been just as angry about mixed race people as anybody else. Sure, sure. Members of the Ku Klux Klan would be opposed to um, you know like interracial marriage, right? Or even, we're not even or necessarily even marriage, just relations. Of yeah, relations, couplings. Yeah. Dr. Jeff Anderson, a history professor at the University of Louisiana Monroe, believes that either Clementine or someone in her house performed the majority of these murders, but that her confessions are so contradictory that I don't think she totally committed all of the murders that she said she did. The question of her accomplices and whether or not they were part of some kind of voodoo cult has never been answered either. So, so you don't even know who her accomplices were. Now, it was 
possibly all of the members of the Barnabas family. Because also when you think about it, you know, people, like let's say that, that you go into a house and you try to kill a family. That might not be always as easy as you think it would be, even when you're sleeping. You know, you, you make noise. Sometimes people wake up. And somebody wakes up and they sees, you know, you killing their family. There, there has to be somebody else there to control them. Yeah. Okay. Perhaps if Clementine's race or class had been different, maybe we would be closer to knowing the truth. Uh, author James Horay wrote for Real Crime Daily that she scandalized the press, stirring up a gumbo of moral panic in a state where civil war and slavery remained a living memory. Everything about Clementine Barnabet represented a collision, even a perversion of cultures. In the eyes of white Louisiana, from her mangled Creole French to her mangled beliefs. A tabloid-baiting blend of voodoo, itself a blend of Catholicism and West African tribal rights, and evangelical Christianity. Okay? So this is likely, I mean, how much of this was satanic panic? How much of this was the Barnabet family, how, I mean, we, we will never know the answers to this. So that's something that everybody gets the puzzle over now. Yeah, but how much, how much of it was her taking pleasure in spreading terror? Yes. How much of that was people she didn't like very much. Exactly. And it does need to be noted though, that the future podcast subject, the Axeman of New Orleans was also active during this time, and those murders also remain unsolved. So it could be that the Axeman was also at one point in rural Louisiana. That's a possibility, too. It could also be that there were other people like the Axeman who were undiscovered. Yes. Just given the, the number of axe murders. Overall. Overall that had taken place. Throughout the country. It's like, keep in mind that in many instances, mm-hmm. people use a a common tool or a tool of the trade. Right. To, to, commit, to commit a murder. Right. Yes. So, Brian, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? <laughs> well, don't, uh, uh, if you're going to commit a murder, which uh, we don't recommend you do that, uh, uh, don't use a tool of the trade because it'll be, you'll be more easily caught, more easily to be easier to trade, to trace, uh, trace the murder to yourself use a use a weapon that is uh, a thing that's in your daily life like a, a bottle of hand sanitizer <laughs> or um a hairbrush or a hair dryer or a hair dryer <laughs> just an everyday common tool that nobody would ever suspect yep yeah and uh 
if someone is murdered by someone with an axe, uh, don't blame the axe. Blame the axe man. Yeah, blame the axe man, not the axe. So, in the next episode, we are going to go on a journey through Louisiana folklore. And I really hope that you guys will join us because it's going to be an interesting one. So, until then, everybody, remember to acknowledge the ghosts in your home. And in the next episode, go with us on a journey through Louisiana folklore. And I'm really excited about that one because it's stories that I love. I love folklore. How about you? Me too. (laughs) So, until then, dear listeners, thank you for joining us. Look forward to, to... Look forward to talking to you next week. Remember to acknowledge the ghosts in your home and ask yourself if candy corn toots your horn. And if you go to see the movie Halloween Ends, remember that the Michael Myers mask was made from a Captain Cook mask. And the absence of William Shatner from any Halloween movie was a missed opportunity. Oh, boy. All right. And we are done.